Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we open up your holy word, that you would again speak to our hearts, that, Lord, you would draw near to us and be real to us. Father, I pray against any anything that would distract your people from hearing and understanding and applying your word, that nothing would get in the way of them hearing the voice of the shepherd. So, Lord, speak. May we hear and may we walk it out. May we obey what you tell us. Give us grace, Lord, to put covetousness to death in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to speak about the very first sin ever committed on this planet, which is the sin of covetousness. When Adam and Eve looked at that fruit and wanted it, even though God had told them that there was the one fruit that they were forbidden to eat of, they wanted it, they desired it, and they eventually took and ate. Covetousness brought about the very first sin. And covetousness brought devastation to this planet. Can you imagine what this earth would be like if man had never sinned at the beginning? Can you imagine? No wars, no police force, (laughs) you know... Love pervading everyone, no fighting and quarreling and bickering and yelling and hatefulness, but just loving and sharing and giving. It would be an incredible place. Well, covetousness has turned this world into a battleground of evil. And all of us, everyone in the world has experienced that pull to to want something that God doesn't want them to have. Either whether it's a new car or a new home or a person or a job or more money, everyone has experienced this pull to want. It's a universal sin. And we tend to think of covetousness as just a little sin. You know, we talk about little white lies. They're just little things. They're not very important. They're not very bad. Well, is that true about covetousness? The reason we think it's just a little sin is because it's it's a sin that's going on inside people's hearts that we don't see. Many other sins, you can see the effects. You can see them stealing or getting drunk or blaspheming, but coveting is going on inside, and so we don't really know what's happening. Amazingly, covetousness was even included in the Ten Commandments. The Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet. And it's the only... A commandment in the Ten that really deals with an internal working of the heart exclusively. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 claimed that as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I'm blameless. But yet, in Romans chapter 7, he said that when he considered the commandment, thou shalt not covet, it killed him. What he means by that is it killed his own, um, when, he, when he thought of justifying himself in the sight of God, and then he thought of the fact that the law says thou shalt not covet, it killed any hope that he had that he could be justified by his own works, by his external righteousness. So when, when he looked on the outside and what he was doing externally, he said, I was blameless. But when the law came about coveting and it got to his heart, He said, I died. 
My hope of justifying myself died. Well, this morning we're going to conclude our series on putting sin to death, and we're going to talk about putting covetous to death. It's the last sin we're going to deal with this in this, this series. And the first thing we need to examine is the nature of covetousness. We need to understand exactly what it is. The first thing we need to notice about covetousness is that it's the opposite of contentment. Turn to Hebrews 13, verse 5. The scripture says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Now notice, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Well, that's another way of describing covetousness. The love of money. Well, how do you do that? How, how do you make sure your character is free from covetousness? He goes on to say, this is how. You are content with what you have. So contentment is the polar opposite of covetousness. We find the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you want to turn there, verses 8 to 10. Paul says, For if we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. The next verse, he starts off with the word, but. So we know there's a contrast coming. What is the contrast to contentment? We'll look at verse 9. But those who want to get rich, there's covetousness, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money. There's another way of describing covetousness. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So in verse 8, he says we should be content with food and covering. And then he says, let me show you the opposite of contentment. It's Wanting to get rich, verse 9. It's the love of money, in verse 10. You see, really, contentment is a form of faith. If you look at verses 11 and 12, he goes on to explain this whole situation. He says, but flee from these things. Well, flee from what things? Flee from wanting to get rich. Flee from the love of money you man of God, and pursue, and he lists a whole scheme of things that he is to pursue, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And then notice he picks the middle one out. He picks faith out for special attention. And in verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So basically, if you were to sum up what he's saying here is flee covetousness and fight the good fight of faith. Run from covetousness, fight through faith that you might overcome the love of money and that you might overcome wanting to get rich. Now, turn over with me to Philippians 4. And we're going to ask the question, how can we be content? How do we get that? See, contentment is a form of faith. Do you remember we said that faith, we, de- we defined faith early on in this series as turning to God to find satisfaction in Him. Unbelief is turning away from God 
to find satisfaction in something else. Well, contentment is turning to God to find our satisfaction in Him. So it's a form of faith. And covetousness is a form of unbelief because covetousness is always turning away from God to find satisfaction in something else that we think will satisfy us and make us happy. Now, notice in Philippians 4, in verse 11, Paul says, Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So, Contentment is not only a fight to be fought, it's a secret to be learned. Paul tells us he learned the secret. Well, Paul, what is it? What's the secret of even when you're hungry and have lack of still being content? He tells us in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. The secret of contentment is Christ. Paul had learned to find his satisfaction and his joy and his happiness in Christ. So that whether he had a lot, that didn't affect this core over here. And whether he had a little, that didn't change the fact that he was full when he had Jesus. See, his outward circumstances really didn't matter because he had this inward relationship to Christ that met his deepest needs at the core of his being. And he found contentment there. So covetousness, Paul tells us, is the opposite of contentment. A second way to describe the nature of covetousness is that it's a form of unbelief. So whenever you are covetous, you're turning away from what you're supposed to be looking to God for, and you're trying to find it in something else. Whether it's a new possession that you think is going to make you happy. Oh, come on. We've all done this. Right? We think, oh, if I just had that, I would really be happy. And for a little while after we get that, yeah, it does make us happy. But then it goes away. It kind of dissipates. It evaporates into thin air after a while. And we find needing something else in our lives. So it's a form of unbelief. We turn away from the fountain of living water and we hew for ourselves cisterns which hold no water. We look to the creature rather than the creator to find this void in our life filled up. So it's a turning away from God to find satisfaction in something else. A third area of covetousness is that it's idolatry. The Apostle Paul defines it as idolatry. Let's look at two passages. First of all, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, notice this, who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. He says the covetous man is an idolater. Or if we looked at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is another name for covetousness. And he says, which amounts to idolatry. Greed or covetousness 
amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. So here Paul twice tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Now why would that be? Let's think about that. I believe it's because we try to find contentment that we should be getting from God in something other than God. So we're turning to a false God to fill up the void in our life. Do you see why that would be idolatry? We're no longer worshiping the true and living God for satisfaction. We're worshiping this false God. It might be a house, a boat, a car, a vacation, a person. You plug in whatever it is for you. That thing becomes an idol because I'm really wanting to try to fill myself up with this thing. And God is crying out over here, come to me. I'm the living bread sent down from heaven. I'm the living water. Eat of me. Drink of me. You'll never thirst again. You'll never hunger again. But we ignore God's call and we think, I know better than you, Lord. I really know that new house is going to fill me up. Or that person is really what I need. And so we commit idolatry. It's interesting to me that in the Ten Commandments, the first one and the tenth one are really saying essentially the same thing. The first one is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, right? The tenth one, thou shalt not covet. Well, thou shalt not covet is really, thou shalt have no other gods before me, in a different way of looking at it. Because if we're coveting, we're having a god before him. It's a god of his own making. We're, maybe we're not making it out of sticks and stones, but we're, our heart is fastened on this thing that's taking God's place in our life. So there we have the nature of covetousness. Now, let's consider the gravity of it. What I mean by that is the seriousness of this particular sin. We tend to minimize it, but we ought not do that. There's eight different things I want to show you from the Scripture about covetousness. Number one, Jesus himself warned us to beware of it. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus said, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. King James says, every form of covetousness. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. So if Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior, told us to beware and be on our guard against it, then we better be, beware and be on our guard against it. Jesus is telling us the seriousness of this particular sin. He's saying, look out for it. Don't let it sneak up on you. Don't let it advance towards you. Be careful of its advancing in your life. So we think, well, covetousness, that's no big deal. It's just something that only God and I know about. Nobody else knows it's happening. But Jesus says it is a big deal. Beware of it. It's like if Jesus told you, watch out for that army that's coming up that's going to slaughter you. Well, we would watch out for the army. He's saying covetousness is like an enemy that wants to do battle and wants to destroy your soul. So watch out for it. Second thing to notice about covetousness, it will choke out the word of God in your life if you don't repent of it. Go over to Mark 4.19. And here we have the parable of the four soils. And Jesus says about the fourth soil that the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, and here we go, the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and the word becomes unfruitful in your life. Do you know you can choke out 
the, the impact that God's word can have in your life by allowing covetousness to come in and not fighting it, not, not seeking to kill it. I don't want to be that person that God's word has no effect in. I mean, we should tremble every time we come here on Sunday that the sin in our life could choke out the word of God that we're hearing and have no effect so that we're not being changed by the word. We're not being transformed by it. We should tremble that our sin doesn't cause that to happen. A third area that shows us the gravity of covetousness is that it will spawn many other sins in our life. In 1 Timothy 6.10, the Bible says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Not just one sort of evil, all kinds of evils come forth from this love of money. I mean, just consider this. The person who covets drugs, they feel I have to have them. Well, they may steal in order to get the money to buy those drugs. This happens all the time. And then they may lie to cover up the fact that they're stealing in order to get those drugs. And in James chapter 4, well, we can even turn there for a moment. In verse 1, James says, What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have. We could say you covet and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. So he says fighting and quarreling and even murder can come from covetousness that's rooted in the heart. So this is a sin that spawns all kinds of other sins. The the wonderful thing is that if you begin to mortify the sin of covetousness in your life, many of these other evils that proceed from our life will also be mortified because they come from a covetousness in the heart. Number four, it makes a person incapable of loving others, which is serious. Now, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, let's think about the love that Jesus has for us. There's two aspects to it that I find most important. It was an unconditional love, and it was a sacrificial love. Unconditional in that there were no strings attached. No conditions that we had to meet. He just loved because he is love. And sacrificial because he had to give himself for our sins in order to demonstrate this love to us. But now think of a covetous person. They're going to be unable to love unconditionally. Do you know why? Their heart's empty and they're trying, they're looking to this and to that to try to fill up their heart. So that when they love someone, they're really wanting something in return because they don't love out of a place of fullness. They haven't gone to God to be filled up so that now it's just the overflow of what God has already done in their heart. They, they, they need, they're a needy person. They need this person to give back to them in one way or another so they can't love like Jesus loves. They can't love unconditionally. And they don't love sacrificially. And, and the reason they don't do that is because their heart is filled with their own desires, and so they're not willing to put somebody else's desires above their own. Covetousness robs you from the ability to love the way Christ has commanded you to love. 
Look how this works its way out in Paul's life in Philippians 4. He says in Philippians 4.11, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And here's the key. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Now, how could Paul not care about the gift for him? What he cared about was how that gift that they gave him was going to profit them. You see, he had this unselfish way of loving these Philippians. It wasn't a selfish love. It was an unselfish, unself-centered kind of love. He really was, he was focused on the fact that this gift was going to profit them. Well, I, I submit to you the reason he was able to do that was back in verses 11 and 12, because he was content. He had this contented, he was finding his satisfaction in God. So he was able to love out of a place where he was already full. The Spirit had filled him. He was full of the love of God, and so he could overflow with this love towards the Philippians. Number five, covetousness will exclude a man from leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 3.3 says, He must not be addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Or Titus 1, verse 7. The very end of that verse says he cannot be fond of sordid gain. So it disqualifies a man from church leadership, from a, being an elder or a pastor. If, if his passion is to gain more and more money so that he, he has no time to minister to anyone, he has no time to disciple men or whatever, then how can he serve? How can he serve the body? His life is wrapped up in trying to attain more and more and more. Number six, it can cause a person to be excommunicated from the church. Did you know that? Covetousness can do that? Let's look at some passages. 1 Corinthians 5, 9-13. Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I... What have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So here's a situation in Corinth where there was a man in that church who is having sexual relations with his father's wife. And the church wasn't doing anything about it. 
They were kind of boasting that they were so tolerant. And Paul says, you've got to remove this man from your midst. But he, he gives a list of other sins that would disqualify a man from being a member of a church. And one of those is being covetous. A drunkard, a swindler, an idolater, a reviler, or a covetous man. Now, have, first of all, have you ever, have, in your entire church experience, have you ever seen anyone put out of the church for a sin that they were not repentant of? It doesn't happen very often. I've been a Christian about, well, since 1980, 1979. So that's 38 years. I've only seen a handful of church discipline issues ever arise and never for covetousness. I've never even heard it ever in any church throughout the world. <laughs> Maybe it happens somewhere. But this is one of those that Paul said, if a man is unrepentant when it comes to covetousness, he's to be removed from the church. You're not to be associate with him. You're not to eat with him. He's to be excluded from the life of the body. Wow. Now, the problem, of course, with covetousness is how do you even know if that's happening in someone's life? Because it's an inward sin that you may not ever see. Well, evidently, in this person's life, it has become so aggravated that it's obvious to the whole church that he's covetous. Maybe he, he won't even come to church on Sunday because he's so passionate about wanting making more money. He keeps his business open. He's working 24 hours a day, constantly, nonstop. Uh, he has no time to love the Lord, to love the Lord's people. I mean, there must be some outward way that this covetousness is manifesting itself so that it's obvious that he needs to repent of this sin in his life. It's become a God to him. But it must be a serious issue if a man could be excluded from a church for it. Number seven, covetousness will fail you in the hour of death. First Timothy 6, 7 says, we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Or Job one twenty one, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. We have brought nothing into the world. When you came into the world, you weren't holding on to a bag of toys, right, or a computer. <laughs> you came naked into the world. When you leave, you're going naked to that, uh, to that grave. So anything that you are a steward of between birth and death can only benefit you during this life. It has absolutely no value in the life to come. And folks, our life here is like a blip. It's going to be gone like that. Before you know it, you are going to be entering into eternity. If you're a covetous man in this life, your whole life was at the pursuit of things or pursuit of of something that you thought was going to fill you up. So when you come to die, everything you live for is going to evaporate. It's going to be gone. It'll be of no help to you beyond the grave. It will fail you in the hour when you need help the most. Only those people who have made Christ their treasure and their God will have eternal treasure waiting them on the other side of death. And then number eight, and this is the most serious of all, and we've seen this over and over. We saw it with lust. Uh, we saw it with anger. It will cause you to forfeit your soul. If you do not repent of covetousness, it will cause you to forfeit your soul. 
Jesus says, what will it profit a man to gain the whole world, but yet forfeit his soul? The covetous man is trying to gain the world. But Jesus said, if he goes on in that direction without repentance, he'll forfeit his soul. Ephesians 5.5 For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3, 5 and 6. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things, including greed, that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Let's take another one. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. One final text, 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I take these words ruin, destruction, longing, or wandering away from the faith to be describing an apostate, someone who ends up dying in his sins and being punished for them in hell. The covetous man will not inherit the kingdom of God, according to God. I mean, nothing can be clearer to me. How can God say it any more clear than what we just read? So, this is serious, isn't it? This is a grave issue that we need to think about. We can't wink at this. We can't just pretend it's no big deal. If it's big enough to land you in hell for eternity, it's a big issue that we need to take stock of and we need to consider how are we going to fight it? How are we going to put it to death? Well, let's look at that. The cure for covetousness. There's two things I want to mention about this. Number one, esteem God better than anything else. That's where you're going to get the cure for covetousness. Look to Him for joy and satisfaction in your life. Let's look at a text in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 32 to 34. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. And here's the key, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, a covetous person would not be able to accept joyfully the seizure of their property because they live for their property. They're they're craving. That's the pursuit in life is to gain those possessions. But here the author of Hebrews says, you were able to joyfully accept it because you have a better possession. Christ himself is better than these possessions. And Christ is lasting. He's an eternal possession. Do you see that 
their focus was not on their things. Their focus was on Christ. So if their things are taken away, it's okay. They still have the thing they have to have. If they lose Christ, they lose everything. But if they lose their possessions, so what? They can live without those. They can't live without Christ. So we need to learn to esteem God better than that job we want or the raise uh, better than that person that we covet who's married to someone else, maybe. Better than that second home. Better than those drugs that look so alluring. I mean, anything. You, you fill in the blank. We need, God is better than those things. He's a better possession. And if we don't believe that, we're going to lose the battle for covetousness. You see, we, we battle covetousness by faith. Contentment is a form of faith. We believe that God is better than anything else. And if he takes it away, I still have him. And he's still all I need. That's what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 4.6. Light shall shine out of darkness. The same one who said that is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What he's saying here is that there's a time when, when God saves a person, there's a time when he shines a light into their heart and he shows them the glory of himself. What that means is that you, you learn to see the value of God, the value of Christ, the value of the gospel. It's not just intellectually agreeing with certain doctrines that makes a man a Christian. It, it's a change that takes place deep within his heart where Christ becomes his treasure. Do, do you see the difference? You can go to church all your life and agree to that doctrine of faith and go to hell because that doesn't save you. Christ must become your treasure, more important to you than this or that or the other thing. He becomes the true and living God and he displaces all of these false gods that you've grown up with and you've, you've looked to for satisfaction. He wants to be the one that satisfies your deepest cravings and deepest need. And then secondly, believe God's better promises. Look at how the writer to Hebrews deals with covetousness. In Hebrews 13, verse 5, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And here's how. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Okay, so here we have this writer talking to people that are tempted by covetousness, the love of money. And he says, this is how you can overcome it. You can be content. And you can be content because God has made a promise to you. The promise to you is that he's never going to leave you and he's never going to desert you. So here's a promise that God himself will never leave or desert you. And there's the promise over here of the lure for a happiness and money. Which one of those do you esteem as to be a better promise? If you believe the word of God and you believe that Christ is a better promise, the promise of his presence is better than the promise of money, then you are going to be content. And you are going to be victorious over the sin of covetousness. You see, we can't overcome covetousness by sheer willpower. 
You know how you overcome it? Covetousness is a strong desire for something. Do you know how you overcome that strong desire? You have a stronger desire for something that's better over here. Now, if I'm a little kid and my uncle gives me a bag of candy and I clutch that candy in my hand, and then my other uncle comes over and says, hey, if you'll give me that candy, I'll give you this check for $10,000. Well, as a little kid, I don't understand the value of money yet. So I'm going to hold on to my candy. But if I've come to the place where I understand that if I have $10,000, I can buy candy for the rest of my life. (laughs) I give him back the candy and I grab the check. See, when God opens your mind and your heart in salvation, he shows you the value of Christ. So you see, it's foolish for me to give my life to this thing over here when this is 10 million times better. That's how we overcome covetousness as we see the beauty and value of Jesus Christ in his kingdom and pursuing his will. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. So brothers and sisters, do you really know deep down in your heart of hearts that Christ is better than anything else you can look for in this lifetime? If you have your eye on the treasure, you won't be lured into covetousness. You can say to the dragon of covetousness, be gone. I have a great treasure when I rest content in God. He will be my treasure now and he will be my treasure to the very end. Be gone in Jesus' name. You and I can mortify, we can put to death covetousness by looking to the greater treasure. Lord, would you seal these truths to our hearts and cause us whenever we start to be tempted and lured one way or the other to remember not to get our mind off of you, not to get our passion moved from you, not to detract or move one direction or the other. Help us, Lord, because we know in this lifetime you've caused us to work, you've caused us to make a living, to provide for our families. But Lord, help us not to get so caught up in that, that we lose our passion of following you and serving you and seeking to extend your kingdom in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.